You need to have a podcast. Everyone has a podcast. You're a great storyteller. You have so much experience. So here's my podcast. Welcome to Five Minutes to Chaos. We're going to explore unpredictable and complex crisis events. I'm your host, Steve Kerr, and I'm excited to embark upon this chaos with you. On this podcast, we will be exploring topics related to the management of chaos, including leading through the complexities of crisis events. We'll be featuring direct and raw interviews with crisis managers, emergency management experts, and thought leaders, and hear the personal stories from individuals who have experienced and led through chaos. I expect some stories will be emotional, perhaps irreverent, they'll be raw. I would not be surprised if an occasional naughty word or two were included in the dialogue. So if you're ready to embrace chaos and complexity and crisis management, you've come to the right place. Thanks for listening, and welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos. Let's face it, in our busy lives, we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. In fact, according to the CDC, only 1 in 10 Americans are eating the recommended daily amount of fruits and vegetables each day, missing out on essential vitamins, minerals, fibers, and antioxidants. And that's where Balance in Nature comes in. Balance in Nature sources only the best produce, free from pesticides, heavy metals, and harmful bacteria. And Balance in Nature is the best fruit and vegetable product on the market. They use only fresh whole fruits and vegetables inside each capsule. They don't use any GMOs, fillers, binding agents, or preservatives of any kind. You're getting real food, real science, real nutrition. I would never endorse a product that I don't use myself and since using Balance in Nature, I feel more alert, I have more energy, my focus is sharper, and I feel great. Live life to the fullest and choose Balance in Nature. And guess what? PAS Report listeners can get 35% off the first preferred order. Start getting the recommended daily amount of fruits and vegetables you need by using code PAS at balanceofnature.com. Welcome to the PAS Report Weekly Roundup Podcast. The PAS Report provides an honest analysis on the critical issues that matter to you without the biased media filters. Here's your host, Professor Nicholas Giordano. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the PAS Report Podcast. This is your host, Nick Giordano. And when it comes to 9-11, 9-11 had a profound impact on us and the country as a whole. It changed our way of life had far-reaching ramifications that go well beyond our borders, and it's a somber day, a a day where we need to reflect on what happened, a day where we need to remember all those who were savagely murdered. When you watch the news and specials, many of them are going to talk about 3,000 Americans that lost their lives, and I was talking to my friend, former NYPD detective Bobby Bell, retired, and he, he brought up a great point. He said it wasn't 3,000 Americans murdered that day. Since that infamous day, nearly 5,000 first responders, construction workers, and others have died from 9-11-related illnesses. The selflessness of, of these people digging through the rubble to find their brothers and sisters speaks volumes as to who we are as Americans. If we look at the number of people murdered, It's actually more like 8,000, and we can never forget them, and we can never replace them. These people were taken from our lives too soon. Today, I have two special guests joining me to discuss what it was like that day and where we are today. The first guest is Steve Carr. The guy is the goat of emergency management. He was also my mentor and someone I consider to be a brother. He has decades of experience in emergency management. He served as Deputy Commissioner of New York City Office of Emergency Management. He was Chief and Division Captain for New York 
York City, EMS, FDNY. My second guest is Rich Rotan, someone I also consider a friend. Rich is a retired chief and deputy commissioner of the FDNY. He is the owner and CEO of Rotan's and Associates. He is someone, both of them, they, they bring an enormous amount of institutional knowledge to the program. They bring real life experiences. You know, when we talk about experts, these are the experts that we should be listening to. In any event, before I bring on Steve and Rich, make sure you hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. Also, go to the PAS Report website, PASReport.com, and sign up for the newsletter. With that out of the way, I want to first bring on Steve Kerr, friend, mentor, someone that I have profound respect for. Steve, great to have you here. So glad you could join me. Welcome to the PAS Report on this somber day. Hey, Nick. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, always. And it's something that's an important day. When we look at 9-11 and everything that's transpired since, you have so much experience in emergency management. When you first saw what was happening, the images that were coming across and the plane crashing into the building, what were your initial thoughts? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's probably important to uh, talk a little bit about my emergency management history to put some context into, into that question. So I've been doing emergency management as part of my role in New York City Fire Department, EMS, going back to the mid-80s. So I like saying my first emergency management job was in 1985, and I've been on call since September 1985. You know, I love these people that complain about being, you know, on call 24-7. <laughs> in 1996, Mayor Giuliani... Well, let's back up a little bit because you yeah. also were around during the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. That's actually very true. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, I was a deputy chief in EMS at that time, deputy chief of EMS operations. And uh, I was uh, I was in I was in training, actually, paramedics recertify every every three years. And I was in training with a bunch of other paramedics and, and senior officers. And we were monitoring the uh, the bombing. And as the patient count rose, we were dispatched to the scene. I was dispatched to the scene, and I I grabbed three other officers, uh, captain and two lieutenants, and responded into the scene. So by the time I got on the scene, fire was still going on underground, and we were in the process of your uh, fire department, Port Authority Police, NYPD, EMS, making rescues, treating patients. We had major um, evacuation operations all the way up to the top of both towers, interagency operations. And I was assigned the role of mutual aid coordinator. I coordinated EMS, paramedic, BLS assets coming in from not only the tri-state areas, if I recall correctly, we had EMS units as far from Pennsylvania. And uh, my my initial role, part of the incident command team, was to stage them, catalog them, and deploy them into the unit as necessary. Then as the incident went on, I was assigned uh, a role within the planning section uh, to collect uh, data on victims, their dispersion throughout the city, where they were transported to. And what we found was we had not only people that were transported by EMS, but that you know, the walking wounded that went to hospitals throughout the city. And uh, and that's the uh, the final uh, number was based on the work that the team and I did. That was about, I think it was 1,092 was the official uh, injury count, six fatalities. So, yeah, I, I did I did have that experience as well. And then 1996, what was going on? So 1996, um, after a series of incidents in New York City, 
a couple in particular, not necessarily terrorism related, although one you you might say has a terrorist angle to it, uh, and, and that was a firebombing in the subway mid tunnel between Brooklyn and Manhattan, pretty close to City Hall. And I was on that job too, and I remember the mayor and his entourage walking the incident scene and stopping at three different command posts, police, fire, and EMS, each in different areas. And after that, and after a series of other incidents, not terrorist-oriented or violence-oriented, war main breaks, fire structure collapses, the mayor decided he wanted to build some sort of a mechanism to unify emergency operations in New York City. And uh, he he created, uh, through the issuance of Mayoral Executive Order 30, the New York City Mayor's Office of Emergency Management, I think it was actually March 19th, 1996, and I was asked to jo- to join the leadership team. I uh, was very fortunate to have worked in the past with the director that the mayor appointed, that's Jerry Hauer, who you know as well. I do. Uh, you, you and I worked for Jerry at, in New York State, and uh, Jerry reached out to me and uh, said, it's going to be tough. But you know, I'd like you to join the team. And I went through a fairly aggressive uh, process to get through that job, to get to that position. I was interviewed by the mayor's chief of staff, the first deputy mayor, and two other deputy mayors. And that was frightening and fascinating, but um, exhilarating as well, because it was the beginning of something special in in, in my career. And uh we did some we did some great things, and I, I stayed in New York City OEM as deputy commissioner for the next four four and a half almost almost five years. And now getting to nine eleven because that's important. So we see you know OEM get stood up in New York City at about nineteen ninety six, and then you fast forward to two thousand one. And did you know when you saw the planes hit the building, the first plane hit the building? Did you think that it was an accident, or did you think immediately terror attack? So here's so here's my story there. So I was at a I was at a conference coincidentally in Florida uh, for a terrorism response in healthcare community, and uh, a gentleman I was with, uh, and also from New York City OEM, and, and a dear friend who has uh, since passed from unrelated uh, uh, response issues for, for another incident, um, came into the main hall where the conference was. And he said, uh, you know, you need to step outside, something going on. So he tells me a plane hit, uh, you know, one of the towers. And I think like everybody else, he thought it was like a Piper single engine lost its way or something like that. We started to become aware of the intensity of the incident, the fire that was that ensued in that particular tower. We had uh, as part of the conference, uh, one of our colleagues was a uh, naval aviator. He was a captain, U.S. Navy, 06. And we we, uh, had the hotel bring a TV over to the conference hall and we were standing around watching it when the second plane hit. And he said, that's a 737. That's the second tower. This is a terrorist attack. It turned out to be a 767, but he was close. And that's when we knew that this was a catastrophic event. Part of my story, part of my story is also that my wife was on the ground for both terrorist attacks because she worked at the World Financial Center directly across the street from Tower One. So I was talking to her. I got her on the phone at one point and I said to her, I made her an evacuation kit after the first attack. And that was, uh, 
you know, pair of comfortable shoes, a filter mask, probably, you know, nothing unlike we're wearing for COVID these days or we're wearing for COVID these days, bottle of water, a flashlight and a whistle. And I said, grab as many as your friends as you can. And she said, the fire marshal won't let us go. I'm like, I'm like, F the fire marshal. I want you to go. <laughs> and, and she went and she, they, her friends and her got to the street uh, and they started walking north on uh, West Street. And that's when the second plane hit. And they, you know, they of course saw that and they observed both towers going. Prior to 9-11 in emergency management, at, at this point, were there any type of, of plans or training for plane crashes into high-rise and high-rise fires and, and how to tackle that? So the one thing that, that needs to be said about the work we did in New York City OEM, and I, and I think you could, you could look at this a couple different ways. Emergency management agencies need to take a risk-based approach to emergency planning crisis management planning, training and exercises. And we did that. We didn't fully understand why we were doing that because I went in to be the hurricane guy. I'd studied hurricanes. I, I knew everything about slosh maps and flood zones that I needed to know. And the director said to me, he said, well, you know, th that's really nice, but you're going to be in, you know, take, take on the role of coordinating the counterterrorism stuff. Uh, and uh, and it, was, it was quite a growth up quite a growth opportunity. So the mayor, having been a U.S. attorney, had knowledge that he couldn't share. I, I believe that he couldn't share. He knew who bin Laden was. He, he knew coming out of the federal government, he knew much more than we did. But the direction was prepare for catastrophic terrorism. Now, we had not done um, any specific planning for terrorist attack using airborne missiles per se. And I'll come back to the high-rise question. Our, our, we had a heavy emphasis on chemical uh, and biological terrorism, and there was good reason for that. If you think about uh, the chemical weapon attack in 1995, you know, that was another incident. This is in Tokyo. That was another incident that brought the mayor to performing the New York City OEM. Uh, if you if you remember, Nick, that was a, a group called Om Shinriko. It was a terrorist group in, in, in Japan that had dispersed chemical agent in two cities, both Matsumoto earlier as a test and then in Tokyo. Um, they killed, if, if I remember, uh, seven in Matsumoto. And if my numbers are right, and it's been a while, I think they, they killed 12 in this Tokyo subway, but injured over 5,000 with chemical nerve agent. And there was also, uh, Aum Shinrikyo had also dabbled with uh, anthrax as a potential biological weapon. So the focus on chemical and biological weapons bore fruit, if you think about it, with the anthrax attacks that occurred post 9-11, which many of us thought might have been actually related, but, but they weren't. So if you if you remember, Nick, there were the, there were the uh, anthrax attacks on the media and government organizations in New York and D.C. and stuff like that. As far as response to high-rise fires from either a terrorism or non-terrorism perspective, the greatest fire department in the world resides right there in New York City. And the New York City Fire Department has... Um, just by the very nature of what what exists in New York City, the the best high rise fire program uh, of any fire department in the world. I'm convinced of that, as does EMS, because we have responded alongside our fire department counterparts. And well, EMS is part of the fire department now, so that we respond respond in unison in making rescues and 
uh, you know, while they're doing a suppression and we're making rescues and we're setting up triage treatment transport operations, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I sort of look at it that way. But the plans we put together for chemical and biological terrorism were applicable that day from a couple of perspectives. One, command and, con- command and control. So we had worked very closely with the feds, with state government, with area governments to develop infrastructure, command and control infrastructure for a terrorist attack. And as messed up as, as response can be to major emergencies, everything came together in that, in, in the subsequent days and months where there was federal command and control centers such as the Joint uh, Field uh, Operations, uh, the JFO, Joint Field Office, FEMA, the FBI uh, JOC, Joint Operations Center, the City Emergency Operations Center over at Pier 92, all in walking distance of each other, so they were were able to communicate. And each of these command cells had connective tissue to ensure unity of effort and unity of command. So kind of stuff did come together. Um, you know, I was part of the team that was planning for the use of a hospital ship. Um, I believe it was the Hope. And, you know, I met the senior leadership of the vessel itself. And when that rolled into New York City that morning, I was so proud because I was I was part of that. Also, the strategic national stockpile. I was part of the team uh, that put together with CDC and, and uh, there was no Homeland Security, Department of Justice, FEMA plans to... Uh, accept, receive, and deploys national stockpile. So the national stockpile is a federal program where medical equipment is stored in classified locations throughout the country. And I still don't know where they are in the New York area, but they were on the ground, I believe, within six or eight hours. And uh, the stockpile um, is also used for the pandemic because they store medications like antivirals and, uh, and antibiotics. So, so the message I'm trying to paint for you, Nick, is that we did all sort of preparedness for terrorism operations that came to bear that day. And, you know, when we look at that day, so we're going to hear the media reports, we're going to see the specials, and there's constant talk of the nearly 3,000 people that lost their lives that day. But it's actually far deeper than that. So that day you had, you know, nearly 3,000 Americans murdered. But in the subsequent years, we've seen a lot of first responders come down with illnesses, uh, particularly certain types of cancers all over their body and everything. And there's an additional nearly 5,000 people that we could say were murdered on 9-11. They may have died after 9-11, but they were murdered on 9-11. And and one of those people was your brother-in-law, Mark Harris. Uh, Can you explain, you know, how many people you've worked with that you've had to see get sick and pass away from these 9-11 illnesses? I, I stopped attending funerals, 9-11 funerals, after I think it was three, not out of disrespect for those that had passed, because I knew so many that were killed that day in the fire department and um, EMS, et cetera, Port Authority. I knew some of the people there. And that was because um, that was just a little self-preservation, uh, because I, I worked the attacks. I was I was there. By the time I said I was at a, at a conference, getting back to New York itself was a a, a bit of a story, uh, but I, I worked the next 10 months or a year. So I, I knew a lot of these people and I worked with a lot of these people beforehand. Um, you know, for example, I, I, I led a team to the Dominican Republic in 1998 for a catastrophic hurricane. And one of the firefighters was my operations chief at that. Uh, and um, it saddens me that he passed that day 
uh, at uh, on 9/11 because he had he had left OAM and gone back to his role in FDNY Hazmat. So I don't think we could have foreseen that 22 years later we still have an active recovery effort from a terrorist attack that happened in 2001. So I myself am in the 9/11 health uh, program. I'm sure every responder. New York City or otherwise that came to help us that they are in the program. If not, I, I would like them to seek it out so they can get monitored for certain cancers which uh, and other illnesses. Uh, and I'm what they call certified for certain illnesses. Thankfully, they're not as catastrophic as others, which is a segue into my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, my sister's husband, was uh, they were married in 20, uh, 10, 2011. They were childhood sweethearts, and they found each other on Facebook years later after you know, going through their own marriages, having kids, and divorcing. And they were married in 2011 at my father's bedside at the VA hospital in, in uh, West Palm Beach. He had he had passed actually a few days later, uh, a couple few weeks later, but he was sick, so we took the, we took the wedding to the hospital. And um, Mark was a uh, a rescue paramedic, which is different than just a regular paramedic. He was specially trained to work with on special operations rescue companies. They were trained to use different medications uh, uh, to train to support, respond, and work in within rescue operations, such as collapse zones, entrapments, uh, et cetera. And Mark had uh, responded on 9-11 from his station. And as I understand the story, when the towers collapsed, like many others, he was uh, entrapped in the rubble and was subject to harsh environmental conditions, including the dust. Uh, your viewers would recall, I believe, your listeners, I should say, would recall the dust many people were covered in when he was that. Mark uh, began suffering a series or a number of head, neck, and throat cancers as as time went on, and it became uh, very catastrophic. He was um, subject to many surgeries where much of his anatomical structures in the upper airway and throat were removed, and he'd gone through radiation and chemo. And on May 13th, 2017, he passed. And uh, he was given a tremendous send-off by the uh, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, who led uh, a, a, a fire service-based funeral. Uh, and it was actually done beautifully at the um, – uh, there was a 9-11 uh, memorial in uh, in Florida, in west side of uh, Palm Beach County, and uh, it was done right there at the memorial with a steel from the building and a beautiful and a beautiful park. So, so my point of telling that story is that there are responders, construction workers, um, people in non-emergency service roles. I don't want to leave anybody out that are were subject to those harsh conditions and are still dying today. Um, as far as I know. There's funding or some pro, some funding that goes out 99 years, but it's critical that our elected officials understand the, the trauma that those responding to the scene went through and it might continue to go through for many year, year, for many years to come. It's hard to think that that's 22 years ago. You know, when I was born in 1961, Pearl Harbor was 20 years before that. So I just gave you my age, right? And now <laughs> it's, it's hard to think that. There's so many people that um, 20 years ago 
are still yeah. suffering. It, it is. And I see, you know, I look at it in my students' faces. So 9-11 is something that I remember extraordinarily vividly, every detail of the day, where I was, who I was with, and everything. And right. most people alive that day do. Then I look at my students, today's students, and I look at them, and I'm talking about 9-11, and they don't have the interest that they once had. And it finally dawned on me that they view 9-11 as I view Pearl Harbor, you know, a, a right. moment in time in our history that happened that was horrendous, but there wasn't the personal connection. My students, most of them, are have been born after 9-11. And so now here we are, you know, 21 years later. That's a long time. And we've seen this ramp up in emergency management and homeland security. One of the fears I have, though, is that over the last couple of years, the last two or three years, I, I feel that, that the emergency management leaders have almost taken a backseat to other agencies, other departments, to the political figures. What's your view on the current state of emergency management? It's, it's interesting you say that because I struggle with what's going on in the emergency management community and and what I'm seeing in in the business, especially with young and mid-career uh, emergency managers. There's a tremendous focus on on resilience, and I'm not quite sure we as an industry or even the individuals that really promote this understand what resilience means. I'm not poo-pooing resilience because I understand the value of, of it and the, and the need for it, but you see very little discussion about a risk-based approach to emergency management or the crisis management need of an emergency management agency. I've even, even heard it say that emergency management agencies should not be involved in a response. Well, that, I believe, comes from a generation of emergency managers that have not been in the rubble, that have not had, and I'm generalizing, and I don't mean to disrespect any of my colleagues uh, above me or younger than me in age, but we have a, a group of emergency managers that may not ha have that crisis management experience, maybe don't understand the need or how to go from zero to 60 at a moment's notice for a uh, an unanticipated sudden onset event, like a terrorist attack or a gas explosion or uh, an active shooter event. And I'm not talking about law enforcement response. I'm not talking about EMS or fire department response or something like that. I'm talking about going going hot, getting an EOC stood up, having that EOC ready. That's that's part of resilience in my mind, having that command center ready, having those relationships in place, having uh, exercised plans in place and having exercised the plan. So when we ring the bell as emergency managers, the other agencies come and, and support that operation. So I want my message is I want emergency managers to focus on resilience. I want emergency managers to balance that with a focus on crisis management and then Post uh, the response phase, certainly the recovery phase. Now, there's there's just typically an emphasis on recovery, and, that, and that's probably part of resilience. But we have, because in a in a natural hazard event, for example, like a hurricane, a flood, or a wildfire, there's, there might be uh, federal remuneration available. So, it, it, emergency management agencies are naturally well suited to to, to work in, in that space. But I just um, I I. I send a message to emergency managers in, 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 in all critical infrastructure sectors and in all communities, take a risk-based approach to emergency management. That's what we did in New York. And maybe you 
might not think you have a terrorist threat. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, after not after 9-11, when Homeland Security was formed, everything was terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And there were a lot of failures in Katrina because of that. That's a whole separate podcast we could have, right? <laughs> so, so we won't talk about that. But I want emergency managers to consider terrorism as something that could be local. So I was an emergency manager in a, in a, in a, in a large city in Colorado and the second largest city in Colorado. And we had five military bases in town and domestic and international terrorism was on our agenda. And we, we, you know, we focused on that. And I, I would encourage emergency managers, regardless of the size of your community or, or what infrastructure you're protecting, business continuity, director of resilience, security directors, whatever, consider that terrorism could still occur. And that's going to be both you know, global and or domestic terrorism. And I think that's a really important point. I mean, when we look at the evolution of emergency management, the people prior to 2001 that were in emergency management had the life experiences that they responded to the disasters for years. Then you look at people like myself that end up getting a degree in emergency management and going in. Now, luckily, I had you to mentor me. But the reality is that a textbook can't teach you how to plan for, prepare for and respond to a disaster. It, it helps build the foundation of emergency management helps you learn the ins and outs of terminology and what the structures of an incident command system are. However, the life experiences is where you really learn. And I think that's a good point. There's, there's, there's controversy over whether emergency managers should have prior public safety experience. And that certainly helped me and, and my colleagues, what you're saying, going back into the 1990s, because I had been an incident commander. I'd been a crisis manager for years leading up to my appointment at New York City OEM. So to go hot, stand up an ESC and, and command an operation or coordinate an operation of that magnitude was sort of uh, you know, something I, I had had already been doing. And I agree with you about the degree thing. And that and that is probably a balance that we need to strike. And it would be valuable for um, universities uh, to that, that have degree programs in emergency management, homeland security to ensure that um, students have some sort of internships as part of the, the degree process in a um active emergency management environment uh, or fire department or EMS agency or police department. So they can envision a, a command situation coming out of uh, if you're 22 years old, you, you, you're, you come out with a degree in emergency management and you, you're looking for a job. You, you'll, you might find an entry level job in one of the critical infrastructure sectors or in a community or state. Um, but that doesn't mean you're ready to go hot and you got to, you know, you gotta, you know, f seek out the old guy or, or, you know, the old individual in the, in the team and, and, uh, get the war stories and, and understand that part of it. 100%. I completely agree. I think it's really important, especially to remember that on a day like this. Steve, I want to thank you for joining me and I really appreciate you coming on. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story and it's always a pleasure to see you, bro. <laughs> We've all been there before. You want to get someone the perfect gift for the perfect occasion, but you have no idea what to get. Well, you don't have to rack your brain anymore. Gift baskets are perfect for any occasion, whether it's birthdays, holidays, corporate events, or a simple thank you. At designeryselfgiftbaskets.com, you get to choose the theme and the products that go into the basket. You have a coffee lover? Try the K-Cup basket. You're looking for something special for the person that loves to barbecue? No problem. There's a basket for it. Make every basket unique to the person you're sending it to. And if you're in a rush and don't have time to customize the gift basket, 
basket, it's not an issue because at DIYGB.com, you can choose from hundreds of prearranged baskets based on the occasion, theme, or recipient. And PAS Report listeners get 10% off using code PAS at checkout. So go to DIYGB.com, find the perfect gift for the perfect occasion, and use coupon code PAS at checkout to get 10% off your order. Visit DIYGB.com today. And now I want to welcome Rich Rotens to the PAS Report. Rich is a retired captain and deputy commissioner, FDMY. Rich, pleasure to have you here. The pleasure to always be with you there, Professor. So when we look at 9-11, obviously it's a solemn day. It's 21 years later. And, you know, I look at my students and I realize that most of them weren't even born when 9-11 happened. They never lived through it. So a lot of them tend to look at 9-11 maybe the way I view Pearl Harbor. So what's your take 21 years later? Uh, like like you mentioned, it's a, it's a solemn day. And uh, I'm always, you know, thinking about the guys that uh, were friends with that lost on that day and also the fellows that perished through the cancers and illness and so on. But I don't think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot, but not enough. And uh, the reason I say that is that because growing up in the 50s and 60s, Smokey the Bear would be kicking butt if you played with matches. Stop, drop, and roll with Donald Duck. You know, it's air raid warnings, you hide underneath the desk. And if you're going down the hallway, Bert the you go next to you. Yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, I don't think they do a lot of education and PSAs enough just on that. And uh, I, you know, have we learned a lot? Yeah, but we, there's a lot more to go, especially in our education, especially with the kids today. Teach them about safety. They don't have safety. What's a go-to bag? You know, things of that nature. Yeah, that's certainly a problem because emergency preparedness is not on most people's minds. And when we look at emergency preparedness, isn't this emergency preparedness month, I think, right? September? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, 9-11, what was the day like for you? At uh, In the morning, uh, myself and uh, two other of my colleagues, uh, First Deputy uh, Commissioner uh, John Onomat and my partner, Mike Berkowitz, were in the process of reviewing a major drill on September 12th on bio uh, emergencies, how fast we were to give out pills of doxy and cyclos, so to speak. But they were just giving out uh, peanuts and so on to the guys from the academies, for fire police. And as we're sitting there, all of a sudden we hear this massive noise of a jet flying over, which you don't hear in that part of town. And all of a sudden you heard the explosion. And uh, that was to take it from that day. We walked around the other side of the building facing south, and you can see the imprint of that jet into the uh, floors of Tower 1, because Tower 7 was the one right next to Tower 1. Were your initial thoughts that it was a terrorist attack or you thought maybe it was an Without accident? a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, it was too much of a clear day and had that guy buzzing at almost speed of sound into the building. Without a doubt. Yeah. And then I remember because I was in college at the time and I remember I was on my way to college and the first class when it first broke over the radio and I knew it was a terror attack right from then. I was already aware of Al Qaeda. I've studied Al Qaeda and it. <laughs> You know, were you surprised that they had that capability to take our own tools, our own equipment, our own critical infrastructure and use it against us as a weapon of mass destruction? Yes and no. The reason why I say that, the the, the attacks in 1993, they were using a rental truck and they tried to blow up Tower 1 there. And there was talks about having flying jets into the Vatican and other places in Europe. So when they did that, yeah, it was a surprise. It caught us completely off guard, obviously. And uh, we didn't have a backup uh, command center and so on. And uh, no, I wasn't surprised. It was a mixed bag of feelings. And when you first arrived at the World Trade Center, what were your thoughts? Right off the bat, not getting killed by a jumper. Because coming out of Tower 7, you walked across that ramp of a Vessi. 
and the people on the east side of the building were jumping in, in dozens dozens or in groves. And uh, you have to watch out for that. And I had to get into Tower One to set up the command post for the mayor and for the commissioners and so on, which was done. One mic was setting up the emergency operations center and so on. So the dynamics is not getting killed. And then setting up the, the uh, command center there in Tower One. And that had to be truly frightening. Like, I I couldn't put myself in a position where I have to make a decision. Either I'm going to burn to death or I jump out of a a building, you know, 100 stories. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely horrendous. And and when you entered the building, you know, I mean, as firefighters, you're constantly training. You're constantly doing exercises, you know, tabletops, functional, full-scale exercises. Did you ever imagine, did you ever train for, you know, something like that in, in the World Trade Center happening? Did you ever imagine that that was a possibility? I mean, I know it was a possibility, but were you prepared mentally, emotionally for that type of response? Well, over the years at that time, I had like 40 years in uh, emergency services, and we went to very large events. The Avanca crash in Long Island, the one in the Rockaways, uh, two plane crashes in LaGuardia, and plus major building collapses, so on. Um, you know, you, you have that mental uh, exercise and mental capability afterwards, but uh, to that magnitude, no. But you go on your instincts, you know, what to do, what not to do. And obviously your adrenaline's rushing through, and, and so that gets you through. You know, as far as the as the day went on, we saw the buildings collapse, obviously. And, and as the day went on and the week went on, did it start to set in? Uh, of the magnitude of what just took place? Well, I think when I initially set the command post, I went back to Tower 7, just to give you perspective. And I saw security from Towers 5, 6, and 7. I go, guys, evacuate the buildings. Because right then we had a second uh, tower attack. I go, everybody evacuate and go north. Don't go south, but go north. We evacuated our building, and I told my staff to go north as well. And when I came back down, we had uh, myself and my uh, partner, Rick Bilek, and we went to Tower 1. There I saw uh, Father Judge and Joe Pfeiffer and, and team, and they went towards the uh, uh, West Avenue side. We went back upstairs to go to Vesey side. With that, Tower 2 collapses. Now, we had no idea it was Tower 2. We thought it was the side of Tower 1. And when it hit the floors, I was bolted about 20 feet towards the windows. And uh, the glasses were being shared and so on. And there we saw, the first time I saw carnage in the building. Uh, and I, you know, had a concussion, blew an eardrum, lost glasses, and we got ourselves out covered with dust and that's from there on we knew we had to do a lot of uh, improvising no command center no plans no backup sites which we didn't have we learned the hard way that day and then uh crawling around with the dust and so on i was looking for my kids i have you know two boys in fire four boys in police two in the military and we found each other in western vesey and uh, you know all the hugs and kissing and crying and all that stuff we poured, poured water on ourselves just to get cleaned up and then from there it was an epic for the next uh few months yeah, and working with the rubble at the scene, you know, what, what, what were the emotions? I mean, it was, it was such, it was horrible to watch, but at the same time, every time they found remains, it was a sight to see where everyone would stop work, everyone would salute, say a prayer. Yeah. You know, what was it like for you? Well, you know, I, most of the time I spent uh, rebuilding the emergency operations center P92 and managing 140 organizations, agencies, and so on. But once every uh, once a day for two hours, I'd be down at the uh, the site, and it was emotional, especially if you know they thought they found someone that you knew, one of the firemen, one of the cops, and so on, because we lost so many friends. And uh, at times, I saw one of my partners from one of the rescue companies find another guy that we worked with, just fell on top and bawled his eyes out. So 
it was emotional and yet very respectful. It was nice that no matter who they found, fire, Port Authority, police, EMS, civilian, they all stopped and paid respects. And, and as far as, you know, the first responders go, when we look back, I mean, 21 years, it's a long time. And it's like the blink of an eye sure. happened in. I mean, I can't believe it's 21 years later. When, when you look back, how much has the, the health been affected of, of those that were on the site? How much uh, post-traumatic stress ha- have many of the FDMY, NYPD, EMS, how, how much have they faced over the years? Challenges. I mean, we, we tend to forget, but, you know, this every, was a traumatic every year, event. Every, every year, September, October, I go get my 9-11 medical. And in 2002, when we first started doing it, you know, a whole bunch of guys, coffee, donuts, laughing and joking, whatnot. That group of guys have dwindled down to a few because they're gone. All right. The esophageal cancers, the brain cancers, the skin cancers, which I have, you know, the heart issues and so on, uh, the suffering. It was like, you know, it's one thing to be killed instantaneously, which is horrible to begin with, but to suffer for many years of the cancers that was going on, that's, it was horrible. But I've known too many guys that are gone, especially when COVID came around. I knew five guys, once they caught it, they were gone within a week. That that's horrible, and, and do you think that we're doing enough to you know make sure that their memories live on to make sure that that people do remember what took place that day, the ultimate sacrifices that were made, and, and the years of struggles that people have had to face? Well, let me talk about my community where I live in East Torquette. When you drive by Ward Noble High School, they have over three hundred flags on the streets, American flags. All right, they memorize it every September for about three weeks. They do a great job. When I go through stores, I go to church and so on. People always say, hey, Rich, how are you making out? My kids understand it because of a large family, you know, fire, police, and military. They'll never, you know, they'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, especially when I came home, you know, it's my, my wife's hugging me. My dog's chewing on my foot. You know, I'm all glad everybody's happy and safe. But uh, I think a lot of people remember it here in the New York region. And the reason why I say that, I gave a lecture to the Department of Energy back in 2010. And some of the people were saying, yeah, if you guys had that issue there in New York, really an issue? And it was a high level of uh, people with depression in the West Coast of the United States. I go, from what? So it's a mixed bag of tricks. And it depends on where you are that people will remember it. And uh, my brother had a a friend of mine that owned a brick factory in uh, Salem, Virginia, invited me to do a lecture in 2004. And he had a piece of steel that was two stories tall. And he says about 50 people wanted to hear your story. I go, there's 5,000. So it's uh, I don't think it's dwindling that much here in the New York area, but I think around the country, maybe so. And, you know, what, what's your take on the whole Afghanistan withdrawal? I mean, it's not political today. Obviously, it shouldn't be political. But when we look at what took place in Afghanistan, now we do have to, you know, say Zawahiri is dead. Osama bin Laden is dead. A lot of the senior leadership within al-Qaeda was killed. Obviously, they replenished the ranks right away. Uh, but we did make great strides against al-Qaeda. They're still a formidable force, and they are a sophisticated organization. But as far as Afghanistan goes, what was it like for you when you saw the images on the TV of the Taliban just recapturing that country within a week of our withdrawal? I, you know, they tried to uh, compare it to the withdrawal of Vietnam, which was an orderly planned event. This, to me, was a debacle. Uh, especially when our military were killed, you know, 13 of them were killed by the explosion and people hanging off train uh, planes and so on. I don't, it was a horrible way of doing it. Should it have been done? Sure, you could argue with which way, but 
do it in a planned, secure way that none of our folks are going to get killed, and especially those people that served us in, in Afghanistan, the people who helped us go against the Taliban. But then again, they left, what, $35 billion worth of equipment? Yeah, and, uh, well, that's the sad part. The Taliban's better armed and equipped today than they were prior to 2001. Absolutely, and it's a shame that we lost all those guys' lives because of the 9-11 event and the way we uh, left it. I think it was a disgrace. Do you think that, you know, as far as today's threats, I mean, you're an emergency management, you're an emergency management guy, been around the block, you, you know Homeland Security better than most people. Do you think we're taking our eye off the ball lately? I think we're taking our eye off the ball in a lot of different areas, especially with the COVID. I mean, they gave billions and billions of dollars to hospitals and you know, healthcare, whatever. And I don't, and they were, to me, my personal view, looking at, except for Northwell and the press, and uh, also the uh, Bartholomews, there were hospitals that did really great, but in the long run, a lot of them did not do good at all. What were they doing with the funds? And we took our eyeball off a regular pandemic, whether it was intentional or not. Uh, hurricanes, you know, it's, it, it, there's a term in research called, uh, normalization bias. Hey, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen to me. Uh, you know, I think socially, individually, and government-wise, there's a lot of things we really have to reevaluate and do a really good risk assessment on what's going on up, outside. Do you think there's any will to do that? I mean, you know, once again, as a former, uh, as a current emergency management person, but former FDMY, do you think that the emergency management community itself, you know, agencies like uh, FEMA, who there's some great people that I still speak with that work at FEMA, but do you think the agencies are doing need to be doing more, need to be more proactive when it comes to planning for and preparing for disasters, whether they're man-made or natural? Do you think that they make the public aware as they need to be? All I can mention before, uh, Professor, is that I don't think there's another, enough education coming from the federal level, from FEMA, the state uh, OEMs, all right, like SEMO and so on. New York City did a thing about uh, nuclear blast. Okay, but how, what about the normal everyday water main breaks and hurricanes or storms? They really, I don't see that education in there. Not preparing the civilian number one, and then also there where they go to work. Um, it, I, I think there's a lot of education that has to be there to get everybody on the ball. It's not just the federal government, all right. You know, uh, when President Reagan says, "Don't don't fear, the federal government will be here this week." You have to be prepared for the immediate event. And you witness firsthand, disasters are local. I mean, that that's what they are. They they yeah. start locally. You might, you know, sap your resources and request assistance from state and federal, but the local people are the most important people. Absolutely. I mean, you put your tile at 911 and you get the guys on the red trucks and the, and the black and whites and the green ambulances, what that, those are the first there on the scene to do whatever. But then you have the utilities, they have to be prepared, which I don't think they're really doing a good job. You know, PSC&G has got a lot of faults, so is National Grid and someone down the line. Without those folks and also fresh water, you know, you could have all the agencies that you want, but you don't have that support for the infrastructure. They have to really get more on the ball. You know, and that's a good point that you bring up, because I don't think we talk about infrastructure enough. I mean, you know, when we look at coronavirus prior to the coronavirus yeah our infrastructure was old and outdated and it was degraded but it, but it, we were still maintaining i mean there was no doubt about that all of a sudden we're hearing about you know energy grids being stretched to the brink rolling blackouts all over the right. country i mean what's going on well i i couldn't tell what's going on i think it's they they, they call it the chronic technical disaster meaning that look at the uh the Love Canal. No one really paid attention to it. All of a sudden, now people are dying from the diseases and, and, and infections and cancers. And you have these uh, bridges now, over a thousand bridges now, are unsafe to drive over. The, you know, the 
they have fun it's going to other social uh, venues and so on instead of taking care of the bridge. That's, you know, the Long Expressway, the people jumping up and down for the first time in five years is now being paved safely. <laughs> you could drive on there. I mean, that, that, besides being safety, it also saved on gas mileages and so yeah, on. Yeah, but part of the um, problem is when you look at the way they paved it, you could see the seams that they paved, and you know exactly where the potholes are going to be forming next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a shame. But I'm a big guy on uh, preserving the infrastructure. I mean, the uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers rated all our infrastructure as a D minus. And the only reason why we got D-minus is because our IT infrastructure is brand new. Otherwise, we've been a complete F. Yeah, it, it really is sad. And when you look at it, I mean, we're supposed to be the sole superpower of the world, you know, at least for now. We'll see how long that lasts. But, I mean, when you look at it, we, we should not be having a third-rate infrastructure by any stretch of imagination, no. especially given how much money we spend each and every year as far as government goes and the tax dollars that are being spent. Rich, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on. I want to thank you for your service. Prayers to you, your family, and, and all those people that you worked with, some that are lost today because of 9-11. You got it. Anytime. You know, I want to thank my guests, Steve and Rich, for taking the time out to speak to the audience. This is a Samba Day, a day to reflect on what happened, the nearly 8,000 people murdered and where we are today. Those who lost their lives deserve to be remembered. And we can't forget that. We can't forget the sacrifices they made. It's a day that I wanted to put politics aside because all those who lost their lives deserve better. And if we factor in the number of soldiers that were also killed in action as a result of 9-11, the number grows even larger to 15,000. Then think of all those people who suffered from physical injuries and mental health issues like PTSD. We're talking about a lot of people that were impacted and a lot of families. If you are someone who sustained life-altering injuries, I have a link up at the PAS report to the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund. I also included a link to Tunnel to Towers. Tunnel to Towers does extraordinary work to help the families of those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. And while we can never replace the lives that were lost, we could try to make things a little easier for their families. So I included the link if you want to give a contribution to them. 95% of all the donations goes directly to the cause. Only 5% goes to operating expenses. So it tells you where this organization stands. It tells you what the priorities are, and it's to help the families that are impacted from 9-11. If you find the content of this podcast informative, please take 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank you for joining me, and I'll be back on Wednesday with another great episode of the PAS Report Podcast. Thank you for listening to the PAS Report Weekly Roundup Podcast. Podcast. Have a good one. Bye. Be sure to rate, share, and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also, visit PASReport.com and follow us on Twitter at PAS Report. 